Good. I'd like to ask for your attention, Sorry. clarifications, shift of emphasis and some perspective on our exercise. Um, I think it's important to have a, a bigger picture of meditation, a bigger picture of what it means to cultivate the mind. Um, obviously such cultivation hinges on particular um, aspects. Yeah? One aspect is, say, being able to establish continuity in awareness. Another aspect is to um, develop resilience against disturbances or against stimuli from outside. Um, another aspect is to widen the vision. You know? Rather than just stick with things while they change continually, be able to follow something, we're learning to develop a kind of holding capacity. Holding doesn't mean fixing, it means opening, welcoming, paying in a respectful way our attention to this, whatever it is. And this is not a controlling, fixing type of attention. It's not a topical type of attention. We're speaking here now of a space of awareness in which things can arise and in which things can change and in which things can cease. Yeah? These are differing skills and no single exercise is going to give you all of the skills. And meditation is all of these skills. It's not just one skill. If you want it very simple and academic, uh, the cherished mindfulness is a, is a fluid type of attention that is <coughs> infused with further qualities. There's an ethical quality to it, and there is a quality to it that is not, that is resonant. The difference between vigilance and attention, or vigilance and mindfulness, is that a vigilance always expects something negative. There's something slightly suspicious. You, you're scanning the horizon for dangers. Yeah? So, um, while vigilance is a very useful thing, it is not actually what makes the heart free. It is not actually what makes the mind collected. <coughs> so, it is important that you recognize the flavor of vigilance and do not confuse it with the flavor of mindfulness. There are good reasons for vigilance, and uh, you better be vigilant in a number of situations in your life. But if we spend here hour after hour practicing, let's not uh, practice our own nightmarish scenarios of what might happen to us and where we might have to protect against. So we're trying to extend a quality of relationship. That's what it is at the heart, a quality of relationship to an aspect of our experience. Sometimes this experience comes from the inside, arises, emerges. Um, sometimes this aspect comes from outside, a sensory input or as meeting, uh, lo and behold, with a real existing human being. Not simply a modulation of our consciousness out there. Yeah, People as a, basically an, an aspect of my mind. No, a real 
sensate human being out there that exists in all reality despite my distortions, despite my wishes and my fears around it. It is a sensate human being. And my capacity to relate to that. These are crucial skills. All of this is part of meditation. So let's be clear. Meditation consists of a number of things. First thing is we learn to we learn the skill of stilling the mind. Now, I don't see any way around this. I don't see after many years of doing this, I don't see any way that we can learn to understand what's happening, learn to be more free in what we find ourselves and learn to profoundly acknowledge the realities we are part of unless we're capable of modulating our mind from wherever it is to more still. Yeah? That skill I see as indispensable. Traditionally this is called samatha practice. It means taking it from where you are, if it's very still to even more still, if it's very freaked out, from freaked out to reasonably uh, rambunctious uh, to maybe amenably quiet. <coughs> so this first stage is indispensable. To be blunt, I spent quite a number of hours doing this in my life. Despite all the pasana we write on our brochures and inside is the herald uh, sort of value of Buddhist meditation. Um, in fact, most of us live complicated lives full of challenges, full of the need to respond. And if you're not learning to, skip, to still your mind, and if you're not willing to put in the time and the discipline and the energy that takes, it is unlikely that major insights are, are going to arise unless you have learned to hold your impulses, to be in touch with the source of stillness in your own being. Um, and it is uh, very likely that you feel drawn to all kinds of comforts and pleasures unless you have found to find some comfort and pleasure within your own mind. So stage one, I think, is very clearly, it's the skill of learning to regulate the intensity of my inner experience, be that thought, be that emotion, be that sensation. The next stage is the stage that I need to be able to gain a distance particularly with the things that tend to flood the mind, I need to be able to establish a sort of safety zone. I need to be able to get out of trouble. In other words, that's what meditation is famous and that's what many people think really this is meditation. It is being able to move back, being able to move off the stage where, where things happen. So I'm able to kind of there is anger, but I am not that anger. It's happening, but I am not doing it, I am not in it, I am not playing it out. There's something capable of seeing or feeling the anger without being part of it. Yeah? This is disidentification. Yeah? This is a crucial aspect of meditation. And many people confuse this with meditation altogether. Yeah? So it's basically being able to get out of trouble get out of what we identify with. It means it's happening, it's not mine, I'm not it. I have something to do with it, and I have some responsibility in this, but I don't need to own this. 
I don't need to be this. I don't need to be my thoughts. I don't need to be my emotions. I can actually disidentify, take a stock that it takes place, and move back and find a safe distance. Yeah? This is very important, particularly for fear, for anger, for depression, for doubt. Yeah, these are the worst. Well, a couple of other things can invade you. Lust can be quite invasive and can take, take you away quite a bit. Um, but generally fear and anger do worse than that. So second stage of meditation practice is knowing how to keep out of it. Yeah. Once you know that, next stage is <clears throat> exactly what you've tried to keep out of. You humbly, negotiatedly, respectfully crawl back in. Yeah. You want to understand this. So what you wanted to get away from and what you understandably would like to have peace from and where you would like to feel safe from uh, this is stage two you'll have to give up you'll have to actually go back in and find out what happens there you'll actually have to find out what troubles you what freaks you out what entices you what pushes you away and you have to in a realistic way crawl back in Find out whether you can get a little closer and see whether you can hold it. Whether you can stay with your breath, whether you can stay with your stillness and be in touch with this. Unless you're willing to do this third step, all you ever do is distance your own relationship, distance your own experience. You go away, you dissociate, it feels good, you feel safe. You stop meditating and the problems are exactly as they were when you left off. If you do stage two alone, it's called palliative care. It doesn't resolve problems. It doesn't even understand problems. The only thing it does is going away from problems. Now that is important, but it doesn't really address the whole issue of human existence. It just addresses the issue of how I can say, how I can stay safe from overwhelm. That doesn't tell you anything about what overwhelms you. It doesn't tell you anything about the power you have to cope with this. It doesn't outgrow anything. It doesn't integrate anything. It doesn't process anything. All it does, it keeps you safe. This is important. In fact, it is indispensable. It is the indispensable prerequisite for stage three. If you can't be sure that you can stay out of something, you can't really... You don't have much negotiating ground to actually deal with something. If it is is at any moment threatening to pull you in, to overwhelm you, or to pull you under. So stage two is necessary, (coughs) but it's it's not even half meditation, to be honest with you. Most of meditation happens in stage three. Collecting the mind happens in stage three. Expanding the mind happens in stage three. Understanding the mind happens in stage three. Purifying the mind happens in stage three. Yeah? All the hard work happens in stage three. That's where the humbling bit is. Being able to still the mind can feel quite good. Being able to keep out of things can also feel quite good. Whoa, problem is not really mine anymore, is it? Yeah? <laughs> it can feel very good, very empowering. So, look at that. All these small people down there. Yeah. <coughs> 
stage three would then look like something. Oh God, it's me. <laughs> you know, all of this, all of this is me. So I'm, I'm doing this. You know, who brought, who let them in? <laughs> so let's have a let's have a look at them. Let's meet them. You know, let's shake hands. Okay. Yeah. And obviously, this is threatening to the stillness, yeah? any, this, any of this kind of meeting of what's taking place, this is threatening um, um, to my control. It is threatening to my integrity. It is threatening to my inde- independence. It is threatening to the stillness I have established. And there's part of us that doesn't want to do this. Definitely part of my mind that says, well, no, well, this stillness isn't quite where I would like to have it. Um, Let's leave the problem bit aside and do a little bit more stillness, another few years or so. And then, you know, once I'm really together, you know, I'm going to turn, turn to the marketplace. I'm going to turn to the difficult bit. So right now, as it starts getting nice, just let me, let me continue that a little bit. Yeah. A reasonable voice, isn't it? Life is short, and why shouldn't I continue the really kind of good feeling bit? Yeah. Unfortunately, our lives don't wait. You know, they, we bring them. Ajahn Chah's image is beautiful. This is, you know, it's like a, like a man carrying, <coughs> carrying dog shit around. You know, and <coughs> sits down, meditates, closes his eyes, and there's a stench arising, definitely. He says, hmm. <laughs> Stinks, you know. This is a bad place. I need to get out of here. You know. Gets up, takes his bag, moves out somewhere else. Yeah, this is better. Okay, everything is safe. <laughs> Sits down, puts his back down. Like after a while, dog shit starts to smell again. Yeah. And so on and so on. Yeah. As long as we don't resolve the issues, as long as we attach, and this is what we do when we don't resolve issues, we attach, we cling, we identify, we create in some form or another ourselves and the world, ourselves and others, ourselves as... Um, whatever you like to create yourself as, and this activity is the is the is the stench. This activity is the smell of dog shit. And as long as we're going to carry this one around, as long as we don't own what we do for this smell to arise, it will smell that way you know, wherever we go. Coupledom, <coughs> heroic solitude, retreat. Busyness, engagement, hard work, holidays, whatever. We have, the stench will follow. So there is a clear necessity to look in the way we suffer. What does create suffering and how do I do it? Now this is completely counterintuitive. Yeah? Admittedly, people suffer and they come here and they don't want to suffer. They want to stop suffering. So being asked to actually look at how they suffer is already slightly an imposition, isn't it? And then declaring this as a practice really is a threat. You know? It's really intimidating. You're wanting to stop suffering. And implicit is, please don't remind me of it. Please let, take me some way where it just doesn't happen. So like you take your car to the garage, you say, when can I come and pick it up? <laughs> yeah. This is the attitude we often have for meditation. Just bring it here on retreat. Akinjino, can you do your number on it? And then I come and pick it up in 10 days or so. But that's not how, how it works. That's not how life works. That's not how the mind works. 
No, we'll need to help. And one way to help is we start, when we have learned some grounding skills, when we have learned to still the mind to some degree, when we've learned to sit still with stuff that is in our hearts, when we've learned to notice that our experience is broader than just the problem, that we have skills and tools and resources, when we've learned that, then we start to actually look at what stops us from getting more quiet, what stops us from really getting into that profound samadhi. What is it then that stops me from being completely happy right now? So we'll have to, instead of treating these things as meditation obstacles, we have to treat some of the fatter ones as things we investigate, we turn towards. Now if you just turn towards and run, generally they they gobble you up. You just get lost. So you run into this, it's bigger than you thought, and you start thinking about it, and after a short while what you've uh, sallied forth to understand is going to sit in your neck and is riding you. So chasing... uh, chasing the impurity of mind or chasing the issues of your life or chasing the big problems, suddenly you find out that they chase you. They chase you through the day, through the hours. They make you jump through the hoops. So, obviously, some skill is needed in this. That skill is about negotiation. It's about balance. It's about pushing boundaries, seeking, seeking very closely what you can actually be with. So it consists of generally stilling the mind, stabilizing the mind, and then using some of that stillness and stability to look at those parts which is which are not still. One turkey at a time. And if you notice this is no longer meditation, I'm being reeled in here, you go back to your breath, you go back to your posture. This is no longer a samatha exercise. You're now trying to create a space in which you're trained to basically stabilize and still the mind, and yet you're willing to spend some time with what arises, not by thinking about it, but by being with it. And I by now understand that you have a grasp of this. There's a difference thinking something or being with something. Being with something means seeing it, means feeling it, means being able to breathe into it, means noticing not just it, but noticing what it does to you, noticing your resonance to it. And then you see, you go a little closer and see, does it still look the same? Has it changed? Does it morph into something? Have I lost my space? I need to go back. Is my space still being? I can get a little closer. Yeah? I call this shuttling or titration or whatever you want to uh, name this. It's basically the willingness to go in and come out, go in and come out and find an approach in which you can connect more deeply with this experience. If you do that, you will understand more clearly what really attracts you what really repels you, what frightens you, what engulfs you, what pushes you back. So practically, what can I do? 
you check in with your posture, you check in with your breath, and then you sift through your body, you sift through your spaces, you acknowledge and you find out how big these spaces are. If it's very tight, this is not the moment to do this exercise. If it's very tight, you go there and try to create more space. You need that space. So some of us, more visual folk, they feel that space very easy. Uh, it's a visual quality. Um, some of us, it's a felt quality. You know, it seems that we are kind of diving into it, and then it widens. Some of us do that very somatically. We just kind of feel the ribcage widening, and by following the widening of the ribcage, we, we enter that space. You need to find out how, you, how your mind works. When you enter that space, you have basically three questions. This would be my suggestion for practice today. The first question is simply, um, what's the climate in there right now? How is it right now in there? Is it friendly? Is it tight? Is it angry? Is it happy? Is it longing? Is it adult or is it childlike? Is it interested or is it diffident? Yeah. You go in and you find what kind of climate is it happening? What is the chitta being infused with right now? So that's an easy question. How, how is it now? You may have to drop this question into the pond like you would throw a stone into a pond and you look what the ripples are. You don't think. You throw a stone in it and you're, kind of, you're being with the ripples. Sometimes you may ask yourself, you may just look at the procession of thought and images in your mind and you may ask yourself, okay, what, what ground these thoughts and these images, what do they emerge from? What soil is this? What's the kind of... From which corner does the wind blow that blows my little sailboats, my cognitive sailboats across the screen here? Yeah? You imagine these thoughts and images being blown by a particular wind over, your, over the horizon of your mind. Out of which corner does that blow? Is this an angry, is this a happy wind, is this a greedy wind, is this a sad wind, is this a, a jealous wind, is this a sulking? Yeah? We get quality of this. These thoughts, these images that emerge in my mind, that I'm being discouraged to follow the last few days, what kind of way do they... Where do they arise from? Not analytic asking, but just the direction. Do they come from a happy place? Do they come from a sad place? Do they speak of happy things or do they speak of sad things? Are there colors? Are there shapes? Are there noises? Are they happy noises or are they sad? Are they disappointed or euphoric? So just to get a quality, not to follow this stuff individually, but you just kind of feel, you know, like you listen to the rooks out there, you know. Is this kind of, are they, are they nice now, or are they not? And you listen to the murmur. You know, Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, listens to the sounds of the world. 
It doesn't believe the sounds of the world. Yeah, that's an important little distinction. He listens. He listens to the quality of what is said and how it is said. The third little question you may ask is, that thought that has arisen right now in my mind, if I follow that thought, if I jump on the bandwagon, if I give it my energy, if I associate along the lines it would like me to associate, where does it take me in two minutes? Will it make me happy? Will it make me depressed? Will it make me victimized and frustrated and lonely? Will it make me angry? Will it leave me lacking self-respect? Where will it take me? Most of our thoughts are not really fresh and new, you know. I don't know what yours are like, but mine are not always <coughs> particularly original. So, a whole load of them, I actually know quite well where they're going to take me. If I jump that little thought train, where is it going to take me? Yeah? I know that. I don't, if I know that, I have a choice. I don't actually need to join. I don't need to board. Yeah? It's going to take me to depressia, I know. So I don't need to board. Thank you very much. I'll let this one pass. Consider, just thinking... You have things arise and you have a choice. There's a choice whether I join. There's a choice whether I give this my energy. There's a choice whether I follow this, whether I enter into dialogue with this. And so many of those thoughts are probably not brand new. So many you have probably thought a couple of times. In fact, some of them are positively stale, and yet still they're there. And you know, if I go in, going into thinking about this, following in this, entering an argument with this, this is where it will beach me very shortly. This will be the cliff I've been thrown onto so many times. Just acknowledge this and acknowledge that you have a choice not doing this. See, I know that this is not going to make me happy. I know that this is not going to make me whole. I know this is not going to solve what it says is the problem. I know this. Acknowledge where you know this will take you. So many thoughts that leave you miserable or losers or somehow frustrated or somehow in the all-too-familiar role of being a victim of something, not getting what you wanted, having been done, having been treated unjust. You know, a thousand ways. We all have plenty of reason for bereavement. And yet, I don't actually need to continue doing this to me. I don't need to follow I don't need to go into the next round of the carousel. I can just say, okay, I know where you're going to take me. Thank you very much. I'll stay here. I prefer the present. Undramatic as it may be. A few rooks, a few breaths. You know? That's plenty. That's a lot better than going down there. You know? And we have that choice. And I acknowledge that choice. So, consider these three questions. How is it now? If you find yourself flooded with thought, or if you particularly find yourself with recurrent patterns of thought, or images, voices, rather than believing them, or trying to stop them, or trying to convince them that they're not right, try to find out what is the soil they grow out of, what is the corner they come from, 
the emotional quality of that corner. Yeah. This is longing, this is sadness, this is grief, this is happiness, this is greed, this is despondency, this is uh, frustration, envy, you know, there's many, many more emotions. Kind of my maudlin self or you know, whatever your particular brand of thinking or imaging is. Kind of acknowledge the tone. Yeah. Acknowledge the energy that propels these thoughts and images into your mind. And try to get in touch with that energy rather than with the thought, uh, rather than with the marionette, the puppet that kind of looks. Get in touch with the puppeteer behind. Second question. Yeah, sorry, that was the second question. Third question is, where do they take me? If I'm kind of bored now on this, what is on offer? Where is it going to take me? Just happy, casual distraction, and I'll be just blubbering on for, you know, uh, the hour goes by, and I'll be happily making nonsensical little statements in my head, entertaining sort of letter soup. You know, you have soup here with letter soup. It's kind of entertaining little jumble of words, a mixture of memories and dialogue bits and advertisement and things that we kind of happily jumbled together. Harmless enough, but detrimental to my collectiveness, detrimental to my clarity. Maybe something is moping. Already, you know, already the fifth day and still not. Uh, he, he really could give his most useful teachings. You know, maybe this kind of voice. Something in you happily, euphoristically writing epistles or kind of eulogies. Something. Ah, one big universe full of lovely animals and beings aspiring the path of fresh steps of the Buddha following and so forth. Yeah. Maybe you have one of those. Depending on what, you may have all kinds of voices in there. You will recognize them. They will be familiar. And you see, okay, I have a choice. I can join. I can believe. I can follow. I can give in to this. Or I can go back to what I can feel immediately. I can just let that go and see whether I can deepen into what is here. So let us do some of those exercises today. Again, I'll be uh, seeing people this morning and this afternoon and won't be seen very much in here. So I'll ask Michael to ring the bell. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.